Welcome to this BMJ podcast with B, Navjot Lada, Head of Scholarly Comment at the BMJ. I'm joined today by Professor Sir Andy Haynes, Professor in Public Health and Primary Care at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and one of the authors of an analysis article recently published in the BMJ about Future Earth, a research initiative that links efforts to study health and environmental sustainability. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Um, can you start by telling us a bit about your background and how you came to be involved with research on health and climate change? My background initially was as a clinical uh, doctor, a family doctor, and also as an academic. Uh, and I worked for many years as a GP in London, also worked overseas in a number of roles. Um, but uh, about 20 years ago, I started to read about climate change. And uh, my view then was, and it hasn't really changed, is it would have an important implications for human health. So increasingly, I started to look at the growing evidence around climate and other global environmental changes and the interlinkages between our environment, the global environment, uh, and human health. And so that's really now uh, beginning to dominate or has dominated my uh, research uh, in recent years. It's now the main focus of my work. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you now chair the group tasked with developing the Future Earth Health Network. Um, can you tell us a bit a bit more about Future Earth and its goals? Future Earth is a, a global uh, network, really, of uh, collaborators, institutions, which is really fostering research around sustainability issues. It really starts from the understanding that we're now an entirely new geological epoch the Anthropocene Epoch. And that replaces the, the Holocene during which humanity grew and flourished over 11,000 years. And since the 1950s, there's been a great acceleration in the rate at which we've been altering the global environment, not just the climate, which is probably the most obvious change, but also biodiversity loss. We're losing species at least tenfold, perhaps a hundredfold, greater than um, pre-human times. We're depleting finite freshwater resources around the world. The oceans are becoming more acid and overfished. And there's remarkable changes in land use with tropical deforestation and other trends. So a multiplicity of trends which are likely to be having effects on human health now, but will have greater effects in the future. And one of the concerns of the commission, the Rockefeller Lancet Commission that I chaired, was that we may have mortgaged the uh, future of uh, health and the health of future generations in attaining the level of development and health that we have been able to enjoy. And so Future Earth was really an attempt to analyse and to foster the analysis of these trends and their implications for humanity. Okay, and um, in the article you talk about how Future Earth arose as a response to several challenges that have in the past and continue to limit action on climate change. Can you talk us through some of those challenges? Yes, the Future Earth has identified a number of, of key areas that need attention. One of them is the challenge of providing food for a growing world population with altering dietary patterns uh, in the face of climate and other environmental changes. And there's something called the water food energy nexus, which essentially is competition between the food and agricultural system on the one hand, industry and energy demands for finite freshwater resources. So that's one area of uh, challenge. The challenge of housing a growing world population in rapidly growing cities around the world. Um, most of the population growth that will occur over coming decades is going to be obviously urban population growth. 
And while cities do offer some advantages, they offer also offer challenges. So, for example, the urban heat island. Cities are likely to be warmer than the surrounding rural areas. So developing resilient, um, healthy urban uh, settings in, in the future is going to be a key challenge. And decarbonizing the world's uh, energy, of course, moving away from fossil fuels, which also, of course, produce uh, fine particulate and other sources of air pollution, which are damaging our health now, and moving towards uh, clean energy is going to be a, uh, a key aspiration for the future. So those are just some of the examples of some of the key challenges mm-hmm. that need to be addressed. And what are the specific goals of the health network, the health sort of aspect of Future Earth? So the health network will be one of a number of networks. Health is obviously a cross-cutting issue because you could argue that it's actually um, absolutely central to the whole of Future Earth because it is essentially the future of humanity we're talking about here. So health is a core issue. But there is a perceived need for a health network to bring together health researchers to foster transdisciplinary research across these different topic areas. And the Health Action Network will do a number of things. First of all, it will try to identify what are the key research challenges? What is the research agenda that we need to address here? Up to now, we've seen very little research funding uh, t- devoted to this uh, these emerging challenges. So obviously, research funding is dominated by the biomedical research agenda, which of course is important. But this emerging agenda of health research in the Anthropocene epoch should receive much greater attention. And so we should be lobbying research funders to give it much more, give the whole agenda much more attention than it's had in the past. We also think it's important to map out the potential sources of data on environmental change, on policies which can address those changes and the implications for human health so that we can make more data available to the health and environmental research communities to uh, better understand these complex uh, interlinkages. And we also want to foster systematic reviews. Systematic reviews have been really a game changer in clinical medicine. You know, the Cochrane collaboration, for example, has really dramatically transformed the landscape in clinical medicine. And although the methods of research, we can't often do randomized trials, for example, in this area, but the principle of critical evaluation of evidence, systematically trawling for evidence, weeding out the poor quality evidence is a good principle and it's something that we want to bring in to this domain and to foster systematic reviews not just around trends in environment and health but also about potential policies and interventions and technologies that will help us to address these challenges of health in the Anthropocene epoch. So is it that some of this research is happening out there but it's happening in a rather sort of scattered way without good collaboration between different sectors? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we in the health research uh, arena have been probably largely ignorant um, of the advances in natural sciences in the study of natural systems like uh, hydrology, for example, freshwater resources, marine ecosystems, the atmosphere, changing atmospheric chemistry, changing urban environments. We haven't been working with colleagues who study these kind of issues. And so Future Earth is uh, an attempt really to foster these kind of uh, much more integrated uh, working relationships between scientists and indeed policymakers who hopefully will use some of this evidence in their decision making. And it's very much 
committed to the principles of co-design. In other words, trying to design research that will address the key policy questions that are going to confront decision makers over coming decades. And so what are the next steps now for the the Future Earth Health Network? Are you looking to recruit collaborators or have you done that already? Well, the network will be launched uh, towards the end of the year. In the run up to the launch of the network, we're doing a number of things. We are starting to uh, develop an open network which will allow individuals to sign up for kind of news items, to post information uh, on the Future Earth website and to foster uh, interchange between researchers from different disciplinary backgrounds but also different geographical uh, regions. We are very keen to engage younger uh, scientists and to develop a forum for young scientists where they can exchange their views and forge collaborations uh, to help foster the leaders of, of the future. And as I say, we're very keen to build the systematic review uh, capacity. Specifically, we're engaging at the moment in a consultative exercise to try to outline what are the key research questions that need to be addressed. And that's something we want to then pass over to some of the big research funders in the hope that they might support more research in this area. So by the time the network launches, we hope that we'll be able to announce new opportunities for researchers, um, both to build capacity in research, but also address some of the key research questions. Okay. And in the paper, you talk about some of the sort of historical barriers. You discuss the um, conceptual and empathy failures or imagination challenges and people just sort of grasping, grasping the issues the knowledge failures, which which we've talked about to some extent in, in the research arena. And then also there there are some funding issues, I suppose. And, and how, how will some of those challenges, uh, particularly, I suppose, the conceptual ones and the, the very practical funding ones, how, how do you think those can be addressed? Well, there are a number of conceptual challenges, really. One is that we've tended to um, use rather flawed metrics of human progress. So when you listen to the political discourse, it's all about economic growth, increase in GDP. But we know that's actually quite a poor reflection of human progress. It doesn't take into account, for example, the damage that we're doing to the environment, the adverse effects on health of pollution and so on. And so we need to develop better metrics of human progress. And of course, we would argue that human health and well-being needs to be placed right at the centre of this uh, agenda. And that's an argument we need to keep on articulating um, and um, hopefully, uh, you know, promote the uptake of that as a really central focus of development policies, not just the health of our generation, but we need to be looking forward because many of the changes that we are making in the world's environment will have long-term impacts. And we put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, for example, more than 20% of the carbon dioxide we put into the environment today will remain there for a thousand years or more. So this is something we are bequeathing to future generations, and that's a big conceptual step for people to take to try to understand that the implications of their actions are not just relevant to um, well-being today but also well into the future. The other conceptual challenge I think is that we were all of us I think brought up in kind of a silo mentality so we were trained in a particular clinical discipline or a particular scientific discipline and that's important it's important to have that kind of rigor but it's also important to be able to see the bigger picture 
and to respect other forms of knowledge and other disciplines and to learn to work together, to learn from each other, that you need a range of different methodological and disciplinary approaches to tackle these complex and interlinked problems. And so that is um, an issue which will be very much forefront of our work uh, in Future Earth and indeed in other fora as well. And the funding issue? The funding issues, uh, yes, it has been a real problem um, to get to mobilize funding because we are talking about uh, wide-ranging and ambitious uh, generation of knowledge which breaks beyond out of these narrow disciplinary boundaries. But we have seen a number of um, leading funding agencies like the Wellcome Trust, for example, has now uh, putting substantial resources into its Our Planet uh, Health program. The Rockefeller Foundation has started to support the commission that I had the honour to, to chair a couple of years ago, the Lancet Rockefeller Commission, and is also putting some other resources into ongoing activities. And recently there's been a meeting of major US foundations, partly in response to the new administration there, uh, and the withdrawal of funding from environmental, particularly climate change, but also other environment and health uh, research and monitoring um, activities. And so they are going to be scaling up their funding to support research on climate change, environmental change more generally, and human health. Okay, well, it's interesting you should mention that because um, I'm talking to you on the day after Donald Trump has announced his decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, for those of us who haven't been following closely, how currently does the P Paris Climate Agreement affect this work, the research that goes on, particularly around health uh, effects? Um, what impact, if any, does Trump's decision have on academic networks, collaborative initiatives such as Future Earth? Well, um, the Paris Climate Change Agreement was an, and is an extremely important agreement for human health and well-being. So it is an attempt by virtually all the world's governments. There were only two that didn't sign up. One because it thought the the agreement wasn't strong enough, and the other one, Syria, because it was in such turmoil it right. couldn't get itself together. So the first one is Nicaragua. The first one is Nicaragua. Yeah. So the U.S. is going to join those other two nations, um, apparently. Although, of course, you can't just walk away from the Paris Climate Agreement. There are, you know, there, there's a four-year period which it has to before it can actually walk away, if indeed it ever ultimately does. On the one hand, um, of course, it's regrettable and in some ways a great tragedy. But on the other hand, since the, uh, the Trump administration has always made it clear that it was kind of hostile to the whole idea of trying to protect the climate and the global environment, in some ways it just makes that transparent. And I think the early reaction we've had, both from within the US, some very powerful voices saying that it's a big mistake for industry, for example, a number of uh, CEOs speaking out. Also, city administrations, a lot of mayors speaking out, governors, for example, the governor of California. So there's going to be a lot of activity in the U.S. trying to uh, fulfill the Paris obligations at the more local level. But there's no hiding from the fact that it is a setback. And even if we implemented all the Paris commitments, um, temperature rise would still be around 2.7 degrees, something like that, above pre-industrial levels. And many climatologists think we should do everything we can to keep within two degrees because above that, the probability of severe and potentially catastrophic events uh, greatly increases. There's no point in taking that risk, particularly when the solutions are within reach, so to speak. 
So if Trump uh, does move out, depending on the actual policies that they implement, of course it will make it more difficult um, to keep, well, certainly below two degrees, but even potentially even below three degrees. And that would be a very serious challenge to humanity. So we need to work with other governments to strengthen their resolve. And the initial responses we've seen on the international stage are that many governments will step up to the plate. The European Union certainly will. China will probably take over leadership. So it's going to be a big loss for the US in terms of its global prestige and influence and soft power and so on. And also there's a danger that the US will be left behind in terms of the technological Mm. revolution because we're going to go through a profound technological uh, revolution over the next few decades in terms of clean energy and so on, other technologies. So there are very big disbenefits from the US in making this step as well as for the world. Uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I've heard that if the US were to leave, the, the date that they would leave would be the day after the next US presidential election. So I, I guess it's something that could potentially change. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, let, let's see what the future holds. The yeah. important thing is that it really raises the profile of the kind of research that Future Earth wants to do and its work with policymakers. And also, I think, galvanizes all of us who are working in this field of climate change, environmental change more generally, and human health. And it means that we need to redouble our effort. And we also need to bring in a wider range of other researchers in the health and allied fields in order to get involved and scale up this kind of work. Well, absolutely. Hopefully it will raise the profile of this work. And, I think it will. And increase the sort of energy and enthusiasm absolutely. behind it. Well, um, thank you so much, Professor Sir Andy Haynes, for joining us. And that article, Future Earth, Linking Research on Health and Environmental Sustainability, is now available on bmj.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and don't want to miss out, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm told we're even on Alexa now. And if you want to hear more like this, then you can find our full back catalogue for free on SoundCloud. Just search for BMJ Talk Medicine.